Last week, we learned the start of Giorgio Perlasca's story. From young Italian fascist to disillusioned, fake Spanish diplomat helping men like Raoul Wallenberg and Angel Sanspreeze save the Jews of Hungary during the winter months of 1944. It was now the end of November, and Sanspreeze had just been forced to flee the city of Budapest, leaving Perlaska to assume control of the situation. Let's talk about the great imposter. Six houses had long since increased to eight, and after the Arrow Cross takeover, all the Jewish people left in the city were moved to the 7th District Ghetto, controlled by those neutral states who still had embassies in Budapest. The situation was tough. Perlaska was constantly combing the black market for food, constantly negotiating with the city to keep the lights and water on in the ghetto. He decreed that every house must have a committee of three people that were in charge of making sure that everyone was fed, clothed, and most importantly, they did not go outside. The Nazi police were everywhere, and they were brutal. Perlaska later recalled exasperatedly that some people would wander and inevitably get caught, and he would have to go rescue them. Sometimes he was too late. He started copying the Nazis' tactics, driving around the ghetto several times a day in a car with Spanish flags, not so Jewish people were threatened, but so Nazis knew these Jews were protected. Between the food, the cars, the protection he had organized, and other necessities, Perlaska was going through money like water. He took francs, he took penge, he took pounds, and as soon as they came into his hands, they were gone. Soon, there was nothing left. Perlaska, in a ruthless but necessary move, asked the people in his houses and the ghetto to spy on each other. If anyone was caught hoarding food or money, it was taken and redistributed to others who needed it. There was no room for selfishness or greed in this world. Adding to the internal strain of those under his control were the external factors he couldn't. Perlaska had assured some cooperation with the police and had frequent meetings with the Minister of Foreign Affairs to keep him updated on any changes as the Red Army approached. But the relationship with the other embassies and the Red Cross had soured. The Swedish-Hungary relationship had rapidly deteriorated as time passed, and Perlaska no longer wanted them anywhere near his houses because their continued support couldn't be counted on. He also disapproved of the way the Swiss and Swedish embassies ran their protection houses, because as the war progressed and Switzerland and Sweden pulled more and more back to their borders, protection began to disappear. Not only that, according to Perlaska, they were selling their protection papers. By his count, they had issued around 40 million papers and had three to 4,000 people constantly cycling through their houses per day. All this meant they were drawing a lot of attention. They would fill a house, and it would immediately be raided by Nazi police the next day. And what was dangerous for their houses could be dangerous for his own. But the lowest in his regard was, by far, the leader of the Red Cross. Perlaska, when asked about him, bluntly called him a wicked man who had no courage and helped no one. Well, as Perlaska amended later, he wasn't wicked. And not everyone could be like Perlaska because not everyone had the freedom he did or the influence the Spanish government had over Hungary. But the Red Cross leader was disorganized, to put it lightly. Perlaska and Spain had already been taking over more and more responsibilities for the other embassies as they pulled out. Soon, he found himself in charge of a Red Cross orphanage as well. When he went to the black markets for food, he found cans labeled with the Red Cross logo as if someone wasn't keeping track. What angered Perlaska most of all was the man's cowardice. When Perlaska went to a German general urging him to allow an honorable surrender so they wouldn't all be mowed down by the encroaching Soviet army, he was unable to convince them because he had no backup. The Swiss and Swedish delegates were all gone, the Vatican representative occupied elsewhere, and the leader of the Red Cross? 
According to Perlaska, he stayed in his office and hid. The Jewish people of the 7th District Ghetto, 60,000 people crammed in a spacement for 3,000, didn't see these struggles. Not only did they have more than enough of their own, but to them, Perlaska was not a ragged man fighting for scraps, but a charismatic, powerful, and sometimes terrifying man that would appear seemingly out of nowhere to help them. A Jewish-Hungarian survivor, Edith Weiss, recalled the first time she saw Perlaska. She and a group of Jews were being led to the Danube River, where Jews and other undesirables would be lined up and shot by the Arrow Cross faction now in control of Hungary. Suddenly, there was Perlaska. He was mesmerizing, Weiss said. In this forceful, powerful way of his, he told them to go away and leave us alone. Perlaska had such authority, he was so strong, that there was no way anyone could contradict him. They simply went away. Perlaska quickly gained a reputation as someone you could go to that would solve your problems. The man himself recalled a horrifying situation involving a young girl who wanted him to save her mother. He told her that of course he would, but these things took time. The girl asked again, and again he asked her to wait. When she offered the third time, she told him that she would have sex with him if it would save her mother. Perlaska was so shocked that he slapped the girl and refused. A few days later, he did return her mother to her, relatively safe and sound. Another story came from a young woman who appeared in one of his houses one day, naked except for a coat. This was December, mind you. The Jews are being tied together in barbed wire and forced to walk in the snow, she told him. They were marched to the Danube. But the Nazis had neglected her and her sister's wire, and they got loose. They decided they would fall into the river and pretend they had been shot when the guns started firing. One sister made it, and when she was found, the Hungarian took her to Perlaska straight away. Perlaska would protect her, and he did. All Perlaska was focusing on now was surviving until the Russians arrived. Maybe they would all be killed, maybe they would be saved, but they would be free of the Nazis. On December 23rd, he headed to the Spanish embassy, surprised when he was stopped by Hungarian soldiers. The Soviet army was very close, they told him. You should go back but there were refugees at the legation he needed to see, so he pressed on. It must have been a pleasant surprise to see it decked out for Christmas with a tree and gifts for him. Perlaska, of course, couldn't take the gifts because it might signal to the Germans that they knew how close the Russians were, how close salvation was, and were soaring up to leave. He didn't want the Germans trying to preemptively wipe them out before they lost their chance. Perlaska would never learn what was in those presents. The next day, the legation was burned to the ground by Nazis. He spent most of Christmas Eve lunching with Nazi officers. Newspapers would later report that he'd given them passports, but Perlaska staunchly denied this, although he did admit he may have given them leading promises in exchange for guarantees of safety. By the end of the day, though, he was alone, on the streets. He was stopped by a Nazi patrol and asked for his passport, and the situation grew tense when the officer declared the papers invalid. Luckily for Perlaska, a group of policemen were nearby, and he called out to them. The police knew his face well at this point, and they told the Nazis to let him go and escorted Perlaska to his home. You should get out while you can, a policeman told Perlaska. The neighborhood is about to close. There's only one street out now. But how was Perlaska to leave, even if he wanted to? All the cars, he revealed, had been stolen or burned. Christmas Day dawned in chaos. The Slovak ambassador Spain was meant to be protecting had been killed. The Nazis were trying to abduct members of the legation. Buildings and cars were on fire, and patrols roamed the streets, 
Perlaska would recall a brief blip of peace at New Year's. They even had a party, though they had to have it in the basement. But the danger quickly ramped up again after the holidays. Perlaska was still giving out letters of protection, but the other delegations, already weak, were starting to crumble entirely. Sometime around January 4th, Perlaska went to visit one of the orphanages. On his way, he saw Jews being moved. Portuguese Jews. The Portuguese minister had asked Spain to assume responsibility for their legation just the night before, but Perlaska had refused at the time. Now, he realized, the minister had outright abandoned them. Perlaska went to see the man immediately, but the Portuguese minister was unfazed by Perlaska's report of what he had seen. According to Perlaska, he was fine if all the Jews were killed, wanted it even. True colors were beginning to bleed through quickly, and the Portuguese Jews were only the start. The Nazis wanted to destroy the international ghetto and put all of the Jews in the old one, where they would be deported or outright killed on the spot. Perlaska couldn't let that happen. He feared not only what the Nazis might do to them, but the approaching Red Army as well. If the Soviets saw people being marched in the streets, they might mistake them for troop movements and kill everyone. Something had to be done. So Perlaska fell back on the method that had gotten him through every other struggle he had faced so far. He bluffed. He went to the Hungarian interior minister, Gabor Vajna, and told him this. Spain is expecting to hear from me, he said. If they don't get a good report in 45 hours, there would be trouble for the Hungarians. The Spanish government was favored by the Hungarian government because, like I mentioned before, there was a Hungarian delegation in Madrid, and they were hoping the Spaniards would help them make a deal with the Allies. Perlaska took it one step further threatening legal and economic measures against the 3,000 Hungarian citizens currently in Madrid if his demands were not met. Not just to save the Portuguese-protected Jews or the Spanish Jews, but all of them. Everyone in the ghettos must stay where they are, and they had to be provided basic amenities. In exchange, he would help Vajna and his family escape Budapest before the Soviets arrived. This was all a lie. Perlaska didn't have that kind of authority, and there were less than 1,000 Hungarians in Madrid in 1945. But what if, Vajda must have thought? The Hungarians had been sending telegrams to Madrid for months trying to get confirmation that Perlaska was the real deal, and they had never gotten a response. And look at everything he had accomplished. Certainly, this was a man with power. In the end, Vajna was swayed by Perlaska's performance. The plan to destroy the ghetto was subsequently halted. The leader of the Arrow Cross Party, Ferenc Zelazi, would tell a different story of the rescue of the international ghetto. According to him, it was Raoul Wallenberg that persuaded the Nazis by passing notes to Zelazi to convince him to halt his plans. This, Perlaska said, was a lie. Zelazi told the story in the middle of his own trial for his crimes, trading in on the good name of a man who had saved hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And there was no one to refute his lies, because the only other party supposedly involved was dead. Perlaska had seen Wallenberg after his meeting with Minister Vajna. He had asked Perlaska to take him to Spain, and Perlaska agreed. It was the last time he would ever see Wallenberg. The Swiss diplomat was abducted and imprisoned on the 17th of January, supposedly dying of heart failure in 1947 in prison. Perlaska would later dismiss this, bitterly noting that he had seen Wallenberg on the streets of Budapest days after his supposed abduction, as had many others. By 1947, Perlaska said, Wallenberg had been dead for years. The ghettos were safe for now, but Perlaska's allies were all dead or gone, and an army with unclear intentions was on Budapest's doorstep. In this chaos, Perlaska met with an archbishop, 
an Italian man like himself. He took the archbishop aside. Maybe he sat down with him in a dark little room. Maybe it felt like a confession for him. My name is not George, and I am not Spanish, he said. I'm Italian. My name is Giorgio Perlasca. I'm from Como, from Padua. And if I die here, I need you to let someone know. Someone must know what happened to me. The archbishop told him he would keep a secret, but not to worry. After all, it was going to be over soon, one way or another. Some of the Jews would later recall Prolaska making a final round of the houses, promising them that the Soviets were coming, that they would all be okay, just don't leave the house. Soon, the capital was under siege. The phones and radios went down at the consulate. Prolaska had just enough time to fire off one last message to Spain to buy himself some time, and then it was total silence from the outside. As the soldiers and tanks rolled in, the Nazis began to push harder and harder to take the Jews away. Prolaska was now moving several times a night just to stop them. He traveled with an entourage of six people, including two policemen, everywhere he went, and they had long switched out their Spanish regalia for Swedish, as the Spanish didn't have a good relationship with the Soviets at this point. One day, they woke to a Russian tank parked on the street the legation was on. If anyone tried to leave any of the buildings, it would shoot. Prolaska remembered watching people dart across the streets with nothing but their own legs and a prayer to back them. The Soviets had taken the city. Prolaska spent a large part of his last days in Budapest, burning all the documents related to the Jewish people, their protection scheme, and the ghetto. He didn't want the Red Army having that information. Later in life, Prolaska couldn't always recall specifics or numbers because all the evidence was gone. There was just so many, he would sum up. There was just too much to do. When the Soviets found him, they put Prolaska to work as a street cleaner for a couple of days, then stuffed him and those he had worked with into blacked-out cars and onto trains. Prolaska had nothing, not even a suitcase. He starved for several days on the voyage. He remembered fixating on a shaving kit, of all things. When they were let off the train at Istanbul, Turkey, he saw someone else carrying his luggage and stopped them. He didn't really want his other things, just his shaving kit. Fortunately, the stranger gave it to him. Prolaska made it home eventually. He had been fired from his job, he had no money, and no one believed him when he told him what had happened in Hungary. In some ways, it was a much harder time for Prolaska than anything the war had put him through. He was almost 40 and had to start his life all over again. He struggled for a long time, but he eventually found a solid job, got married, and even had a son. No one knew who he was, but that didn't matter to Prolaska, and it never had. He was content. Until. For some time, a group of Jewish survivors had been talking about the Spanish diplomat that had saved them in Hungary. What had been his name? No one ever spoke about him, even though he had done so much. So they searched. For 43 years, they searched all over Spain, with no results. And then, in 1987, Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial and Remembrance Museum in Jerusalem, received a letter from a Dr. Evelyn Blistein Willinger, who lived in Berlin. She and that group had tracked down the supposed Spanish diplomat to the house of a 79-year-old Italian man living in Padua with his wife. The nationality was wrong, but there was no denying. This was the man who had saved 5,000 Jews in Hungary. To my astonishment, she wrote, nobody knows his name. Nobody thanks him for what he did. We are asking you to honor this great man with a noble soul before it's too late. Yad Vashem did just that. 
After a story was brought to light, Perlasco was quickly recognized by heads of state, humanitarian associations and organizations, and, maybe most importantly, the men, women, and children he had helped save. His awards are, in no short order, Star of Merit from Hungary, awarded in 1989, Nesset Medal, Israel, 1989, Town Seal of Padova, Italy, 1989, Wallenberg Medal, United States, 1990, Medal of Remembrance of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, 1990, Knight Grand Cross, Spain, 1991, First Class Knight Grand Cross, Italy, 1991, and Gold Medal for Civil Bravery, Italy, 1992. In 1987, he was made an Honorary Citizen of Israel and named Righteous Among Nations, joining Raoul Wallenberg and Angel Sanspreeze. A bust was raised in Budapest to honor his deeds there. Books, interviews, and articles were printed by the thousands telling his story. Through it all, Perlaska retained his blunt, almost blasé manner about what had happened in Hungary. It was what had to be done. The only thing that could be done, in his mind. It was nice to be recognized, but he had never needed it. Giorgio Perlaska told a story for those who wanted to hear it, received his medals gladly, rejoiced in meeting with the adults he had known as children, hiding away in the Hungarian ghettos, and then went back home to live the quiet life he had been living for over 45 years. He died there on August 12, 1992, of a heart attack. He was survived by his wife and his son, Franco. He was survived by the thousands of Jewish people he had saved in Hungary, and their children, and their children's children. He is buried in Padua, Italy. His tombstone has both English and Hebrew script, and is frequently decorated with a wreath holding the Hungarian tricolor. It has been visited by delegations of Hungarian Jews on the anniversaries of his death. They leave stones of remembrance wrapped in their colors and sing songs, both Hungarian and Jewish, in his honor. Since his death, movies, books, places, and even a symphony have been made in his name. Perlasco is not alone in his actions. Not in Hungary, and not in Europe. There were so many brave men and women who acted in World War II. So many who couldn't just see the Holocaust happen and do nothing about it. So many that some stories got lost along the way. Perlaska, in his memoirs, called himself the imposter. He was not Spanish or diplomat. He was not Sanspreeze or Wallenberg, Schindler, any of the people others have compared him to. He was an Italian businessman, former fascist and soldier, a showman and a liar, a rational man dragging everyone through an irrational time in history by the skins of their teeth. He was a savior, but it was not a pretty, nor glamorous, nor heroic tale. It was, to Perlaska, the simplest story in the world. People were equal, and should be treated as such. If someone was trying to act against that, then you had the duty to stop them, if you were able. So when he made his own escape from imprisonment and got to the Spanish embassy, when he saw all those people lined up, scared and crowded, but abandoned. When he realized he could save some of those people, it was no question to him. He was able. So he did it. The end. By the time he left Budapest, Giorgio Perlaska had saved 5,218 Hungarian Jews from deportation to Nazi concentration camps. Perlaska might have considered his story quite finished, but for those 5,218 people, he had given them the means to turn another page. And when they did, his name was right alongside theirs. 
written in bold.